Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Inside the Boards podcast. I am Patrick Beeman, your host. I'm the former director of medical education for online med ed, founder of Inside the Boards, and currently huge lover of the new PlayStation Tetris game. If you've followed ITB, you know I have often mentioned my wish to have a PlayStation VR, and this goes back like three years. Well, my 12-year-old son saved up enough money to buy one, and I pretty much took it over last weekend, and it was awesome. At any rate, today it is part two of our uh, interview with Adam Rodman. Chase, the host of the Medical Nemesis podcast, is doing the interview on this one. But before we get into that, let's take a question. All right, to start, what's the question? Which of the following drugs should be avoided for this patient? And here's the vignette. A previously healthy 49-year-old male presents to the office with nausea, vomiting, fever, and diarrhea. Physical examination shows splenomegaly. A CBC shows anemia with an MCV that is normal. Upon further questioning, the patient reveals that he has recently traveled to Africa to partake in a mission trip, and he returned one week prior. He admits that Prior to going on the trip, he did not take any prophylactic treatments for travel. Rapid testing for malaria reveals a positive antigen test for Plasmodium falciparum. Which of the following drugs should be avoided in this patient? The answer choices are A. Chloroquine B. Quinidine C. Mefloquine or D, doxycycline. All right, just because I have this bad habit of not saying what the actual answer is before going through the question, I will tell you the answer here is A, chloroquine. Chloroquine should be avoided in patients who have an infection with Plasmodium falciparum. But let's go back to the vignette. So what are the highlights? We've got a 49-year-old guy with some GI complaints, recent travel to Africa, um, and of course, as you know, geography, when mentioned in a vignette, is always important. He's got an anemia, and then they just flat out tell you that he basically has plasmodium falciparum. Um, Then you're asked which of the following drugs uh, should be avoided. So what's really being asked is which drug doesn't work for Plasmodium falciparum malaria. All right, so asking which drug should be avoided in this particular patient, um, this is a way question writers will use to test whether or not you know, say, a particular side effect, a particular contraindication, 
um, or in this case, a particular form of resistance uh, that a certain drug um, may carry, um, or rather a certain uh, bug may carry against a particular drug. So this patient has fairly general complaints, so that's not all that helpful. The long and the short of it is chloroquine is not a good drug to use for plasmodium falciparum because the parasite is resistant to it. All right, so let's just walk through a little bit of malaria stuff. Um, over on our Study Smarter channel, we have a, a uh, more expansive episode that covers some parasites like malaria. Uh, it's Microbiology 3, Influenza, and Parasitology 101, if you're interested. But broad overview, and I mean broad because, like I said, I am an OBGYN in the United States, and uh, I don't see a lot of malaria. So what happens first? Well, the Anopheles mosquito, the female Anopheles mosquito, is attracted to the sweet musk, the um, carbon dioxide of human beings who are just going about living their lives, and the mosquito takes a blood meal, which I think is just a great term and so weird to see in the review literature. I, I don't know why that strikes me as odd, but once the mosquito bites a person, the particular plasmodium species, of which there are five, um, get into the blood, and these at this point are called sporozoites, after they get in the blood, they go to the liver where they infect the hepatocytes. And then things get a little more complicated, but thankfully it's almost so complicated. I think that you don't really have to know this hardcore, um, just some useful highlights for each of the species. After infecting hepatocytes, you've got three species, Plasmodium falciparum, Plasmodium malariae, and Plasmodium nolisi or since I never remember that one, no less. No lissy, uh, I don't know. I know that one less. Within one or two weeks, these three species will multiply to become mirozoites. In contrast, Plasmodium vivax and ovale enter a dormant phase where they are called hypnozoites. So there's a long delay from infection to disease with vivax and ovale. But with the others, it's on the order of weeks between infection and symptom onset. But moving on, after asexually reproducing within hepatocytes, these parasites are released into the blood and bind to RBCs. The various species will uh, target either immature red blood cells, all blood cells, or older ones. I don't think you need to know that. Uh, just know that after um, release from hepatocytes, the mirozoites will go into the blood and they will bind to RBCs. Once bound to the RBC and hijacking it, making its way inside the cell, the mirozoites undergo reproduction, and this phase is called the erythrocytic phase of malaria. There are a couple or a few stages to this. First one, um, the little parasites or trophozoites look like little rings inside an RBC. Stage two, the trophozoites grow. Stage three, 
they digest hemoglobin and end up causing lysis of red blood cells. This is problematic. While some of the merozoites will differentiate into male and female gametocytes and remain within RBCs to be picked up by another mosquito and uh, uh, transmitted again to another innocent victim, after lysing the red blood cells, we'll pick that up in a second, but know that some merozoites become male and female or differentiate into male and female gametocytes, remain within RBCs and are picked up by mosquitoes having another blood meal um, and are taken up into the mosquito's GI tract where they become a zygote and form uh, the sexual phase of reproduction for um, plasmodium species. As the zygote matures, it becomes an oocyst, which then ruptures and releases the sporozoites into the mosquito's salivary glands, which repeats the cycle we just mentioned. But let's return to what happens after these merozoites get out into the blood. The erythrocytic phase of each of these species does differ a little bit, like with falciparum, it's a few days. Um, with plasmodium malariae, it's a few weeks. Um, but this kind of incubation within the RBCs or uh, erythrocytic phase of malaria is what's responsible for the notable and unique clinical finding we see with malarial infection, namely paroxysmal fevers. So the paroxysmal fevers result from rupture of RBCs and release of the parasites, um, which causes, of course, the also release of TNF-alpha and other cytokines based on the, uh, the erythrocytic phase for each species. As the parasites are, or merozoites, are released into the bloodstream, you see things like a hemolytic anemia because the red blood cells are bursting open. And with that comes the clinical findings of fatigue, headache, jaundice, and splenomegaly. Most of these infections are actually fairly mild and just have kind of those symptoms, except for infection with Plasmodium falciparum. Plasmodium falciparum is the worst. If it were a Star Wars character, it would be Jar Jar Binks. The reason why Plasmodium falciparum is so bad is because it has this protein on it that coats uh, infected red blood cells, which then clump and get stuck inside tiny blood vessels, uh, which block blood flow to organs. Hence, you can see multi-organ dysfunction in patients who have severe malaria caused by plasmodium uh, falciparum. Yeah, I think that's pretty much the highlights you need to know. Plasmodium falciparum is the worst. Um, that's the one that causes severe malarial disease, and then the others cause more mild disease. Um, how do you diagnose malaria? Peripheral blood smear will identify parasites within red blood cells. Um, the treatment is a little more complicated, and this is probably where the boards would want you to uh, know a little bit more in depth. Um, and it's divided based on the stages of infection that we kind of did the overview of um, before. First up, our um, prophylaxis. So there are two kind of things here. Um, causal prophylaxis, which is um, drugs that target the parasite in the pre 
erythrocytic liver forms. And uh, uh, these are atovaquone, proguanil, or primaquin mainly, and then um, suppressive prophylaxis. The suppressive prophylactic drugs to remember are mainly chloroquine, mefloquine, which is the drug of choice in pregnancy, and doxycycline. Some fast facts about drugs to treat actual infections, not uh, prophylax. Chloroquine, this is kind of the archetypal drug for malaria. It cannot be used in Plasmodium falciparum infection because of resistance. So instead, a Plasmodium falciparum infection requires artemether lumafantrine or atovaquone proguanil. So basically, don't use chloroquine with Plasmodium falciparum. Instead, use mefloquine or atovaquone proguanil. Primaquine is used to kill hypnozoites, the Plasmodium vivax or Plasmodium ovale uh, infections that are chilling in the the liver for one to two years. And then uh, for life-threatening infections, use the intravenous drug quinidine. I think I've said a lot here, and that's all we'll go with. So uh, for now, let's move on to part two of the interview with Dr. Adam Rodman and our own Chase DeMarco. Do you know the story of, of how he did the first malaria therapy trial? I remember basics of it, not the full story. So he was a psychiatrist in Vienna, and this was during World War I, and things were just crazy, right? Sick, sick um, wounded soldiers were being brought back from the front back to Vienna to be treated. And everyone was pitching in the way they could. And they accidentally admitted a soldier from Gallipoli. Um, I don't know what the soldier's ethnicity was to the psych ward. And he had malaria. So there's this young man suffering from malaria, uh, very ill, and they ship him to the psych ward by accident. Someone made a mistake. It it actually doesn't surprise me. When I worked in Botswana, uh, there were a number of patients on our psych ward who actually had TB meningitis. in, in the absence of good diagnostic studies, often infectious diseases will be thought to be psychiatric in nature. What Wagner Jorek did, he, he appropriately diagnosed the man with malaria. And prior to treating him, he did treat him with quinine, but prior to treating him, he actually just took samples of the guy's blood and injected them into eight patients with GPI, um, with general paresis of the insane. And two of those patients died like within a, within a couple days of injection of the blood. Uh, so like, this is something that would never work by i mean it's 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 unethical by modern ethical standards to do a trial like yes of course and i guess where i wanted to go with this is since we start we've covered some of the devices and how they've evolved over time in medicine medical history how would some of the protocols have also changed like a brief synopsis maybe I think you could, there's a very clear demarcation in where uh, medical trials change or medical studies, as you say, change. And that's after World War II. Really, the, uh, after the Nuremberg trials, and especially the doctor's trials, you start to see the formation of uh, medical ethical precepts. This is where you start to get the institutional review boards and really trying to protect participants. Um, and that's, if you, if you wanted to draw a line in the sand where that really starts to happen, it's like 1946. Okay, good. I find that at least from what I recall from this briefly covered in my medical education, it was so briefly covered that sometimes we don't fully understand where these changes came from, what was the benchmark um, 
that has led us into much better yeah. ethical it was the, it was the nazis yeah <laughs> i just can blame them for a lot of stuff so i do like to to kind of see how things have changed and understanding those those points so we can continue to learn from them as well not be ignorant to our past and possibly repeat it yeah i i at least when it comes to the ethics around i mean i should say it's not like after 1946 everything got great there have been major ethical lapses especially in um the developing world there have been some controversies even in the last couple decades about uh testing medications in uh, low-income countries but uh it's a lot better than it used to be like yeah, a lot of experiments were done on prisoners or kids in orphanages not great yeah definitely not that's where our protected classifications come from. So I think I've covered most of the general notes that I wanted to go over today, but I know you have so many more great stories. Are there any particular ones you could think of right now to mention to the audience? Let's see. What am I reading about right now? I, I'm always reading about multiple things at once. I've been reading a lot about uh, Hopkins and, the, and William Osler and the foundation of Hopkins, which I suppose is interesting. I'll, I'll talk about what the next episode is going to be about. I, I'll ask you this, Chase, how do you know that smoking is bad for you? Um, because we've been told that it's bad for a long, long time. And What's interesting is to me, we know that smoking causes lung cancer, but, but how do we know? So I had this question just off the top of my head, right? Like, this is something that I've been told a lot. I, I don't doubt that it's true, right? I, I mean, there's such a large amount of information that I have no doubt that smoking is terrible for you, but how do we know? So I started pulling up a lot of the old trials on how we determined that smoking caused lung cancer. And there's a really interesting story there. It's about Tony Bradford Hill and Richard Dahl. They're two epidemiologists, or I should say an economist, doctor pair, working in the 1940s and 50s. Like If you go back to the beginning of the 20th century, pretty much everyone agreed that uh, lung cancer deaths were going up, but most everybody thought it was from environmental pollution. Bradford Hill and Richard Dahl actually, in order to study this, invented a brand new type of epidemiologic study, a prospective cohort trial, which is something that we learn about now. But they actually developed this methodology to study this very complicated question of what was causing the lung cancer increase. And along the way, they essentially invented this new set of criteria to determine causality called the Bradford Hill criteria, which you may or may not have heard of before. I don't know if they teach it in medical school. I don't recall that term, no. Have you heard of Koch's postulates before? Do they teach that still? I've heard of that one. Yeah. I'm see if I can remember it. But Koch, Well, Koch's postulates are from, I, I talked about earlier about Robert Koch discovering the anthrax bacillus. And Koch's postulates are essentially how to prove something is infectious, an infectious disease. And you had, there's four of them. You have to isolate a microorganism, look at it under a microscope. You have to grow it in culture. You have to reintroduce it into laboratory animals who'll get the same disease. And then you have to take it out again, look under the microscope and see that it's the same. Yes. Um, so those are Koch's postulates. And that was revolutionary in, in its time. They're not really true. Even Koch knew that they weren't true because like syphilis, you can't grow in culture. There are patients who can carry a disease and not be sick like typhoid Mary. Um, so they're, they're imperfect but it was still the first attempt to show causality. And then all of these, Bradford Hill and Richard Dahl come along and in their attempts to show like, how do we prove that like something like smoking can 30 years down the line cause lung cancer? And they develop these new set of criteria that really are still super influential today, right? Whenever you read an epidemiological study, they're referencing, if, even if not directly, uh, the Bradford Hill criteria. So I think it's an interesting example of how I was curious about where, you know, how, how we know that smoking's bad. 
And by looking into that, I realized that that debate is actually what has largely defined causality for 60, 70 years at this point. Didn't realize that either. So uh, spoiler alert, yes, it does cause cancer. Yeah, oh, yeah, no, it's terrible. <laughs> and in fact, it's one of the things that I ask in the episode as I go, like I go through all the studies as they're done, and then I ask the listener, like, at what point would you have stopped smoking? And I think it's interesting as the data pours in, like what is enough to convince you individually? Huh, I can't wait to hear that then just to, to see how it progressed. I know the debate went on for so long and because it was so ingrained in, in so many different communities from politics to medical to continued on for much longer than it should have. Well, what's interesting is that from a medical perspective, so the, uh, the Medical Research Council and the NHS in Britain basically determined that they agreed with Dahl and Hill in 1958. So that's just four years after their study came out. And then the U.S. issued their statement in 1962. So from a medical perspective, it was actually solved. But look how long it took to make a difference in popular culture. Jeez. Wow. Yeah, that was a long time. Yeah. You know, the, the health authorities actually responded very rapidly to the evidence. I don't, they had no question. So good to hear that uh, um, progress there. And I'm really interested to hear the rest of the episode since that is uh, a topic that a lot of my friends have discussed in the past, and I'd love to bring them some of this new information, well, information from your Wait, show. What, what, have you, what have your friends discussed about whether smoking is actually bad? Oh, more along the lines of the quantity of badness, if that is a, a term. So No, that's true. That, that's, that's how they determine that there's a dose-response effect, right? Yes. The more you smoke, the more cancer you got. And then like, what if I only smoke on weekends? What if I do only one a day or versus a pack a day? Those are different discussions that I've heard that I find extremely interesting and uh, don't know much about. So I will definitely be keeping an ear out for your episode on it. Oh, there's there's data on that. Essentially, the more you smoke, the worse it is. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Well, Adam, I am out of questions for you, unfortunately. I want to pick your brain so much more, but perhaps we can set up another time to continue in the future. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me, Chase. All right. That's all for this episode. We appreciate you listening, and I harp on it a lot, but please, please know that when you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcatcher like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, um, and especially when you leave a review or rating of our show um, on Apple Podcasts, it really helps us in the rankings and provides the sort of feedback we want to be able to um, incorporate and uh, therefore make ITB better um, to help you, you know, study on the go and learn the things that will help you increase your efficiency in study, uh, decrease some of that test anxiety, and help you walk into the examination center with confidence on test day. On that note, too, if you'd like to engage more with us, um, you can join our Slack community. Just click the link in the show notes or go to bit.ly slash ITB Slack, um, where you can ask questions um, uh, for inclusion in the podcast or uh, related to how to approach various uh, practice USMLE uh, questions or get advice on study strategies, uh, you know, mutually support one another. And then, of course, me and the other podcast hosts uh, will also be checking in from time to time. So join our community, become a Boards Insider. Um, what else? Uh, music for this episode is a cover of Alanis Morissette's song, Thank You. Uh, the artist is 
Mark Makina. Um, you can find the full track on YouTube. I think it's a pretty good uh, cover, um, and I put the link in the show notes. So until next time, enjoy your life both within and outside med school. Thank you, India. Thank you, terror. Thank you, this illusion man. Thank you, frailty. Thank you, consequence. Thank you, 